This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about the calling of Peter and the first apostles, which once I read the Gospels, you'll see is really the call of Peter, dot, 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 and the apostles. Because these stories really do focus on Peter, but they also focus on how Jesus changed the story of mankind, starting with this band of 12 apostles and then spreading out from there. He changed men, male virtues, try to make that case. He changed the importance of community, was always important. It's even more so now. Jesus is saying something very specific by doing what he does here. Uh, he entered a family to show us God's appreciation for the family. Now he's starting the church by showing God's appreciation for human friendship. Because he started his life on earth in a family, and he started the great project of the church with a group of bros. How do you say that so it's cool? Whatever. First of all, when you talk about the call of Peter, you're talking about three different stories. In one, John the Baptist's disciple, Andrew, calls in his brother, Peter. In another, Jesus gets into Peter's boat. In a third, Jesus calls Peter, and Peter just abandons his boat and walks away from from it. Some see a contradiction here, but I don't think so. In fact, I've noticed that in my own call to faith, there's the same kind of contradiction. So I was baptized and received First Communion, but I rejected the whole idea of God around age 12, which statistically is when most people are doing that nowadays. And there are several stories I tell about kind of what brought me back. In one story, I'm sitting on the back porch at age 15 thinking, that I should probably be pro-choice because who am I to say what's a real life and what's a human life and what's not. But then I was struck with this powerful certainty that I had to reject moral relativism. I decided I can't put myself in a situation where I can't say that Martin Luther King Jr. was right and the KKK was wrong. I have to be able to say, yes, people can say certain moral truths. So once I accepted that, I had to accept that human life had to be sacred from the moment that it was human life. Well, I tell another story about my conversion, my reversion, which is discovering Bob Dylan's Christian songs at age 16. I told that in an episode of The Extraordinary Story, as a matter of fact. I also have told at various points about my visit to Our Lady of Guadalupe before I was a believer at age 18, and also the story of the Oxford Dominicans I spent a year with when I was 19 and my visit to the Fatima Shrine. Anyway, there's lots and lots of ways I can tell the story of how I discovered Jesus Christ, and it doesn't alarm me that there's three ways you can tell the story of how Peter discovered Jesus Christ. So I'll tell the three stories, and I think I'm going to tell them out of order, uh, but I'm going to kind of start with the most prominent one about how Jesus stepped into his boat. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. 
the fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we have worked hard all night and have caught nothing, but at your command I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were tearing. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them. They came and filled both boats so that the boats were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish had seized him and all those with him, and likewise James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So look at what happens in the gospel. Simon Peter and the other fishermen have been fishing in the lake in the early morning hours, which is the best time to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, which goes by a couple different names, awkwardly and confusingly in the Bible. Uh, Jesus starts preaching on the shore nearby, and soon he plunks himself right down in Simon's boat to create a bit of barrier between him and his crowd. The fishermen are tired out. They're done with fishing for the day. They've done all they can do. If there are any more fish out there, they're going to be safe from the apostles for that day. But Jesus transforms the scene. He says, put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. And the rest, as we say, is history. Simon in the gospel is very much like what many of us are doing when Jesus kind of pokes his head into our life. Not only does Simon not want to change the world, he doesn't even want to change himself. The God who created him from all eternity wanted him to be leader of the apostles, taking on the single most important job ever. And when the Lord approached him, Simon Peter steadfastly ignored him in favor of the job of cleaning fishing nets. Uh, This is what happens with us. And we don't pay attention to Jesus. We don't look up from our mundane little life to his extraordinary story until he makes it impossible to ignore him. He literally stepped into Peter's boat and started preaching to the crowds right next to him, which is a total violation of personal space. He does the same thing for us. We don't know what Jesus was preaching about that day, but we can kind of guess that Peter listened and that the words were meant in large part for Peter. So that when he tells him to go put out into the deep, Peter complains, but he does it. What follows is a catch of such gigantic proportions that the nets tear and Peter's whole life kind of tears open with them. Peter knows a miracle when he sees one and he knows himself also. So there's this point where Peter says, depart from me for I am a sinful man and reveals what has been going on in his mind all along. All along, he probably really feared himself in his encounter with Jesus, his past, his weaknesses, his sins. All his self-assurance that he has as a leader of men, of fishermen, melts away when he sees the awesome power of God. So there's something very real and right about his humble self-assessment as, I am a sinful man. But there's also something wrong about it, because he's basically understanding himself the way Satan does. No, not understanding himself the way Satan does. He's understanding God the way Satan does. Because 
like Adam and Eve in the garden, we see God as a tyrant when we follow sort of Satan's cues. We see him as a tyrant that we have to hide from. We're ugly and ashamed of who we are. And we think God is here to, to be mad at us or to get back at us. But instead, Jesus says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And it's right after here that he and James and John left everything to follow him. So Peter goes from fear of God to everything's changed and I'm all in. So let's look at St. John's version of the story, which actually probably happened earlier in time. But it goes like this. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The beginning words there are the next day again. And it's interesting to note that this is the third time that these disciples of John the Baptist have heard about Jesus. The Gospel of John recounts how one day Jesus was walking by and John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, with which is actually John the Baptist revealing to them something that only Joseph has heard so far, that what this guy is really going to be all about is taking away the sins of the world. The next day we hear John was standing with two of his disciples as he watched Jesus walk by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So again, this Lamb of God. And then we get today's, which says the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. So when we think of the stories of the calling of Peter or the apostles as people met Jesus, dropped everything, and it was love at first sight, that's not exactly what's going on. It's only the third day, the third approach of John to this you know, reality of the Lamb of God that really captures them. And that's, of course, exactly what happens in our life. We don't come across Jesus. I didn't have my revelation on the back porch and suddenly drop everything to follow him. He has to come again, again, and again. So, But note that phrase, the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist points him out not as the master or the teacher, but the Lamb of God. The apostles would have known as good Jews exactly what that meant. It meant the Paschal Lamb. It meant the suffering servant who is foreseen by Isaiah. So when the apostles finally decide to follow Jesus, it was not his teaching or his political ramifications that they were responding to. It was his self-sacrifice, his self-offering for our sins as a Lamb of God. We find this in literature. This is the image of God. Christ, which captures people's imagination. If you read the story of Lancelot in Mort d'Arthur or Julia in Brideshead Revisited, they have this image of the suffering Christ that they can't get out of their minds. I like the way Marie Ballette puts it. Her CDs were favorites in the Catholic counterculture in my generation. A lapsed Catholic character in one of her songs complains to the crucifix, why are you always suffering at me? This suffering Christ won't leave us alone, and this image of the Lamb of God won't leave the apostles alone. 
So finally, Jesus turned and saw them following him and asked them, what are you looking for? They said to the Lamb of God, Rabbi, which translates as teacher, where are you staying? I don't know what we're looking for when we first take an interest in Jesus. Peace of mind, probably. Relief from the nagging questions that won't leave us alone. At least that's what it was for me. But when we have an authentic experience of him, we suddenly know exactly what we're looking for. We are looking for whatever will put us close to him. So St. John was so energized by this encounter with Christ that he can never forget the moment it happened. It was about four in the afternoon, he says. Well, it's the 10th hour means the same thing in the translation we read. And this is the moment that the Amazing Grace song sings about. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And it's become kind of shorthand for the moment you realize Jesus Christ had something in store for you. Importantly, the moment doesn't just fill the apostles with joy, it sends them into action. They run immediately and get Andrew's brother Simon and bring him to Jesus saying, we have found the Messiah. And it's significant that in John's gospel, it is at this moment that Peter gets his name. He was named Simon before, and he, now he's called Kephas, which translated means Peter. So sometimes we think that he earned the name Peter by standing up for Jesus at the right time. No, he already had the name, according to John. Sometimes people have made the claim that Jesus wasn't calling him the rock, but his profession of faith the rock. No, he called him the rock from the very beginning. So let me tell you one last story about the calling of Peter and his apostles. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what's going on here is extraordinary. To give us the greatest possible shot of hope, Jesus chose the least likely people imaginable to change the world. Well, I don't know if it's the least likely people imaginable, but certainly not the people you would expect. Jesus didn't choose the best and the brightest. He didn't choose great tactical military minds or people with far-reaching education. Instead, he chose simple fishermen who were minimally educated. St. Bede put it this way. He said, Fishers and unlettered men are sent to preach that the faith of believers might be thought to lie in the power of God, not in the eloquence of their learning. What these fishermen will achieve is going to dwarf the accomplishments of Alexander the Great, the Caesars, and Napoleon. They'll start a revolution of truth that will make modern science possible. They'll unleash an appreciation for beauty that will reinvent the arts. They will start an ethical system that changes the way human beings are treated worldwide. How? Jesus didn't say, come and fish with me. He said, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. Ultimately, God did what was done, not them, but he did it through them. In Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, as the Trojan forces pin the Greeks in next to their ships and the fight looks hopeless, the Greeks take the best armor from the least men and put it on the top fighters, giving the least men the worst protection and favoring the best men. Here Jesus does the very opposite. He takes the least ones as the stars. 
But the apostles were called not to change the world, but to reach their neighbors. Jesus didn't tell the apostles to establish the intellectual and artistic underpinnings of Western civilization. What he told them to do was to lure a few souls out of the dark waters of sin and into the light of grace. This took the apostles a long time to understand. They thought at various points that their job was to expel Roman occupiers, bring the tax collectors to heel, and put the Samaritans in their place. No, their job was to do what they were good at. Their job was to fish. It's the same with us. We worry about the crushing weight of society's burdens, politics, which seems hopeless, the economy, which seems fragile, the betrayals by religious leaders, which seem insurmountable, the violence in the world, which we feel we can never match and overcome. But that's not our job. Our job each week is to fish, to bring a soul or two closer to Jesus Christ. And if we do that, God will do the rest. Jesus also gives us hope by who his target market is. Catholics love reading the stories of the talented intellectuals who were converted to Christianity. I know I do. But in the beginning, the Lord chose fishermen, ordinary blue-collar people, not intellectuals. That came later with St. Paul. I grant you that. But Christianity is something for ordinary blue-collar people first. It's even the same thing today. We shouldn't make the mistake Jonah made. He didn't want to travel to Nineveh where the people who needed to repent were. He wanted to go somewhere where wild success awaited him. But successful fishermen go where the fish are, not where they personally prefer to spend the afternoon in the lake. Jesus sends his emissaries to where the people are, not to where his emissaries like to hang out. Later on, we'll learn that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners instead of the model citizens of his day. Here we learn that he wants to reach the world's rough and untidy people, not perfect pious types, and that those people are the ones he's chosen to make an impact. As St. Remigius puts it, Wonderful indeed is this fishing, for fishes, when they are caught, soon after die. But men, when they are caught, by the word of preaching, are made alive. Anyway, the message Jesus has is really exciting, but it's also really difficult Jesus doesn't just proclaim victory, saying this is the time of fulfillment, the kingdom of God is at hand. He also says, repent and believe in the gospel, or to translate it, he says, undergo a metanoia, a radical change, and be convinced that Jesus is the center of your life and the victorious Lord of all. About that metanoia and that radical change, I think it's worth noting here that the apostles were all men. Is that sexist? I don't think so, and I don't think it's sexist that the church has followed Jesus' example and chosen only men for the priesthood. I think it's actually an anti-sexist move. Let me explain. Well, first of all, what what do we see priests doing most often? Well, wearing robes and preparing a table and offering a kind of a meal at Mass. I think it works against the sexist idea that women are the people who do that sort of thing and not men. But apart from this superficial observation, uh, we can know that what Jesus did was change the highest male virtues that were valued by mankind, changing them from being oriented mainly toward war and aggression to being oriented mainly toward service and love. So let me explain this a little bit. 
In findings that were published in October 2018 in Science Magazine, there's this massive study of 80,000 people in 76 countries via the Gallup World Poll that found six gender differences, so six differences between men and women that stick regardless of what country you're in, regardless of what uh, social class you're in. They stick across all of these different boundaries, making us assume that they are differences in the genders themselves, differences in what it means to be male and what it means to be female. The first difference the study saw was altruism. And you can state any of these six differences in a way that makes the female difference sound better or the male difference sound better. So for instance, you could put this one by saying that women are better at giving, or you could put it by saying men seem to be better at retaining and guarding resources. Well, Jesus says in the gospels that he wants his leaders to be wise and faithful stewards. Religious leaders who will bring out the right amount of food at the right time is the way he puts it, but it's the right amount of spiritual foods, of real food and the works of mercy at the right times. So he wants a balance of this kind of uh, altruism. The second trait difference is in trust. Now you could put it that women are more trusting, or you could say that men are more watchful. Well, Jesus wants both, but he stresses that he wants his shepherds to be watchful. They're supposed to watch for thieves that break in and steal or wolves that attack the flock. Well, the next difference the study found was in risk taking. You could say that women are more careful, and that's a good thing. Or you could say that men are more ready to face danger, and that's a good thing. But Jesus wants his shepherds to face danger, to lay down their lives for the sheep. The fourth difference is patience. Now, this is one where it's hard to see how the male side is, is as good as the women's side. Women are called, or women tend to be more patient. You could also say, though, that men tend to be more driven, right? And Jesus really wants both. He wants us to be patient as the fruits of his work unfold. He also wants us to be driven with urgency to set the world on fire, as he puts it. Fifth is positive reciprocity, which means that women are more likely to return a favor, which is a good thing. On the other hand, you could say men are more willing to accept charity, which is also a good thing. The apostles are meant to accept alms, but also to demand their wage later on, St. Paul will point out. Anyway, the sixth difference in the study was negative reciprocity. So you could say that women are less inclined to revenge, and that's a good thing, or that men are sensitive to injustice. That's a good thing. Well, Jesus wants both. He wants us to be sensitive to injustice, but fundamentally to be for mercy. Now, I don't want to overemphasize these differences, and I'm not claiming that these differences equal only men can be in ministerial roles. That's not the point. But I do think that it's worth taking these into account and seeing how Jesus Christ changed the ideal for what a man is. So if you look at the classic great man as a conqueror, and a womanizer with, in many cases, lots of wives or lots of conquests at any point, at any rate. Uh, then look at the ideal Christian man and you see a big difference. I'm going to use the code of the Benedictine College man that we use here in the college as a kind of a Christian code of a male. And it goes like this. I am a son of Benedict. 
I live such that in all things God may be glorified. I am a friend of Jesus Christ who puts God first, others second, and himself last. I seek the truth and strive for greatness with courage and character. I am a raven. I am a man of community, faith, and scholarship. I am true to my friends. I honor women. I persevere in work and prayer, and I am a lover of learning. Well, that's the very opposite of toxic masculinity, and I think this is what Jesus is trying to do by surrounding himself with men. As Justin Martyr put it, a band of 12 men went forth from Jerusalem, and they were common men, not trained in speaking, but by the power of God they testified to every race of mankind. And it's not just that it was men, it's also important, I think, that it was friends. It's especially important today when we have a crisis in friendship, especially male friendship, as it turns out. Uh, Because what they didn't have in education, they made up for in fraternity. Now, there's several new books diagnosing America's cultural decline and pointing to the lack of community as the culprit. Uh, there's a great um, story in uh, Ben Sass's book, Them, about how the great fire in Chicago did not kill as many people as the 1995 heat wave in Chicago. Why? Because in the 1995 heat wave, there were so many people that were isolated from friends or family. Nobody checked on them. Nobody got them out of their rooms. They just died alone as they lived alone. Well, that's a terrible sort of commentary on where we are as a culture. And Tim Carney, in his book, Alienated America, kind of spelled out how this epidemic and loneliness is happening. He said, life outside the connected bubbles we all live in tell a tale of alienation and skyrocketing opioid deaths. The collapse of community isn't just people not having a Memorial Day parade to walk in. It's a collapse of the things that make life bearable, end quote. So the family we talked about is one way that we shield ourselves from this anonymous mass that, uh, of impersonal forces in the market and the state. Well, the next level up from that are called intermediary communities, and that's our circle of friends. This happens at our local pub. It happens in our civic organization. But Carney points out, it almost exclusively happens among people who go to church. He said there's two entrances into these crucial networks that provide meaning and support in life. One is to be a part of the elite. So if you live in an ultra-wealthy, gated community, you're probably going to be fine and surrounded with friends and like-minded individuals. The second way, though, he said, is to go to church. Either one will do. He says he went into poorer neighborhoods to do the research for his book, and found that only people who are connected to a church end up connected to a network of friends. He talks about Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, which is an earlier book that made the same point. But that book mentioned mostly kind of secular organizations. And Carney's research shows that people don't even join secular community activities unless they first have a grounding in a faith life, a faith community. We see an especially sad kind of product of this in the escalating suicide rate. Now it's escalating among all age groups, alarmingly with young people, but the people most at risk of suicide are men my age, sort of men in their 40s and 50s, 60s. These are the people who feel that life has lost its meaning and lost its purpose. 
So here in the very inception of God's great project of bringing about the redemption of man, we see this first step addressing exactly what we need today. Uh, you know, I, I've talked about how at the very beginning of human civilization, human beings cooperating is what made us excel as a species. Well, now we see that in the very inception of God's reopening of humanity with the church, we see this cooperative group, this band of brothers. So we need to embrace community now more than ever, but certainly in the way that Jesus and his apostles did. So just to close this out, the gospel may leave us wondering, well, what about me? Jesus didn't appear by my side in my workplace. I mean, he kind of did, but I couldn't see him. Jesus is invisible to us. And yeah, the apostles had this great experience of friendship with each other and with God because they were hanging out with God. They were traveling with him and talking to him. Well, I mean, I know he's real, but he's not sitting across from me and traveling with me and I'm not camping out with Jesus. So it can seem as if we have a very impoverished relationship or opportunity to be with Jesus compared to the apostles. But I want to argue that the opposite is actually the case. Yes, we spend time with our friends, in some cases every week, uh, but we can spend time with Jesus every day and every moment of every day. Yet we can read our friends' social media status updates or emails or texts as they text us when exciting things are happening in their lives. But these are always kind of surface level, kind of brief, kind of perfunctory. When in contrast, the words of scripture that we can read anytime we want speak to our hearts and reveal new depths whenever we encounter them. But Jesus, we know, created us, sustains us in being, and died for us. Our friends are not available to talk to us 24-7, but Jesus is. And even when we do talk to our friends, we communicate only partially and incompletely. We're preoccupied. We're thinking about something else while they're speaking. We do tune in occasionally, but at best, our communication is partial and distracted. But with the grace of prayer, we can communicate with Jesus deeply, heart to heart. It is often easier to talk to our friends, that's true, Speaking with Jesus requires patience, quiet, and attention, but that patience and quiet pay off in extraordinary ways. Once we overcome human distractedness and learn to hear God's voice, our communication with Jesus has a lot of advantages over our communication with friends. He spoke to me when I wasn't even trying on my back porch. He speaks to us when we're hiking and see beauty or when we're walking to work and see something extraordinary. But most often, he speaks to us through religion, through the church. We often think of religion as something extraneous, less authentic than a personal relationship that we expect to be direct. Uh, but that isn't so. I'll tell the story sometime of how I visited Our Lady of Guadalupe Shrine before I was a believer and how God spoke to me even then. But even when we talk to our friends and family, we do it through a form of, quotes religion, right? We do it through meals that we organize, kind of rituals that we've inherited that allow us to the space to interact with each other. And ultimately, that's where we find Jesus, in church. Every parish church has the Stations of the Cross, for starters, which proclaim silently that Jesus is there listening, walking with us through our own trials and sufferings. 
But every parish church also has a tabernacle, and that's where the real presence of Jesus Christ resides. With the priest's help, there he is waiting for us every day, and he listens intently when we speak to him. And if we listen intently, he will speak to us. Believe me. And at every Mass, he tells us, come and see, just like he did to the apostles, and we go and see where he is staying, right where he is. And this starts this extraordinary story where we're restoring the relationship that Adam and Eve first had with the Father, where we're walking through the garden with him at our side once again, where we see the reverse of the rejection of God in heaven, where we become greater than the prophets who saw what was coming, because here it's actually come. And we see the real familiarity that we can have with Jesus Christ as he reaches out to us as men, as women, knowing who we are, and forms a real bond, forms us into his new band of brothers and sisters as he walks with us, showing us how our stories only make sense in his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.